Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. We can all see a variety of short-term impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. After the initial healthcare crisis and lockdowns, we've witnessed falls in economic output, restrictions on human mobility, frictions in supply chains, growing social tensions and unprecedented government intervention. But what kind of changes could the coronavirus lead to over the longer term? If previous pandemics are anything to go by, there could be some quite dramatic changes in economic relations, working practices and in society. To talk about the potential future impact of coronavirus, I've invited Eleanor Russell, a PhD candidate in history at the University of Cambridge, to join this episode of the podcast. Eleanor is the co-author with Professor Martin Parker of Bristol University of a recent prize-winning article in The Conversation, For those who don't know it, The Conversation is an excellent website bringing news and views from the academic and research community to the general public. In their recent article, Eleanor and Martin explain how the 14th century Black Death pandemic, which wiped out between a third and a half of the human population of the time, had a profound impact on wages, on the relations between employers and employees, and on the future structure of businesses and corporations. The Black Death also led to significant social and political tensions, some of which took decades to play out and also impacted society over the longer term. So let's listen to some of Eleanor's ideas on what may lie ahead. Eleanor, thank you very much for joining the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit more about yourself and what you're working on? So I'm a final year PhD student. I work on large companies and how they respond to major changes. So my thesis focused primarily upon the impact of globalization, primarily how European companies responded to involvement with Asia via the Cape Route and with the Americas. But I also look at the impact of other changes, including pandemic. Thank you for explaining that. In the last week, you published uh, what I found a very interesting article in the conversation uh, on the impact of COVID-19, putting it into perspective and bringing some historical parallels from previous pandemics. Could we start by putting the coronavirus pandemic in the context of previous episodes in human history in terms of scale, the number of people affected? How can we measure it in, in absolute terms? I think the, the two primary differences between this pandemic and previous pandemics is that on the one hand, there's a much lower death rate than there have been in previous pandemics. And that's largely to do with advances in science, both in terms of medicine and in our knowledge of how diseases are spread. So we have a much better response. The other difference is that it's all happening much more quickly because of how globalised the world is. Previously, it could take years for a disease to spread even within Europe, whereas now, of course, it travelled from China to Europe within a few months. Um, And there hasn't really been the opportunity for countries to learn from other places to see how they've responded to the situation because of how quickly things have developed. Okay. So, uh, I I mean, there's two very interesting differences there, the the speed of spread of coronavirus compared to previous pandemics and uh, the differences in in the you know ultimate effect on the on the population but perhaps we could go back to the the period you've studied in the middle ages the the impact of the black death and talk about some of the social uh, and economic impacts of that uh, pandemic you know, what were the primary um, economic impacts of of the black death the short term impact was that people were unable to work that crops couldn't be gathered because suddenly 
there was no one to gather them, uh, that there was complete chaos in the system of imports and exports because uh, there was there were quarantines imposed because ships were not sailing because people were fearful of infections. So that was that the short term impact was just that trade shut down, not not entirely, but was really severely affected. And then the longer term impacts are quite different. Would you like me to go into those now? Well, let's, let's talk. Yeah, let, let's let, let's talk about the. Let's expand a bit on those short term impacts. So, so some of those things sound quite familiar to a, a modern era. I imagine that some of the disruptions of supply chains. What did the Black Death do to the relationships between putting it in modern terms, employers and employees? Well, the first thing to understand is that this is a time in which wage labor is only really starting to emerge. A lot of people are serfs or in some sort of contracted labor with a landlord in which they are exchanging work for the lord uh, for the right to live there and for the right to have some other privileges such as gathering fallen timber. So with the introduction of the Black Death, that really starts to change because this system relied upon a very high number of, of people, so a, a large labour supply. When that falls, peasants are able to negotiate for better uh, for better prospects, either by demanding that they are paid more or that their rights are extended, or by threatening to leave and go elsewhere. So the difference, but sorry, the relationship between employer and employee, as we would put it, really starts to shift. The power balance starts to move in favour of the employee, whereas previously it had been heavily in favour of the employer. Okay, that sounds like a very interesting parallel with the modern day. I mean, without wanting to jump back and forth forth in time too much, um, I, I know that for the last uh, few decades, there's been a a, you know, a greater share of the profits made by corporations has gone to the owners as opposed to the to the labour uh, employed in producing those profits. So it, it sounds as though if the Black Death had that kind of impact, maybe we might see something similar emerging from the current situation. Potentially. I think it will depend very much upon what sort of company people are in. I think the very large scale companies are seeing quite a different response to smaller companies. But in large firms where they haven't protected the rights of the of the employees, the health of the employees, we're seeing a lot of people start to unionize and to start demanding safer conditions, uh, compensation, either in terms of wages or some other uh, reward for the risky work they're having to do and otherwise perform activity that I think we had seen a bit of a decline in. You know, I think a lot of people think of unions as something that's very much of the 1970s. And recently, we've seen some people start bringing that movement back um, as a response to the changing circumstances. So some, some re-emergence of collective bargaining power amongst employees. Yes, I think so. And, and particularly not, not just the power, but the desire to use that power, the desire to work collectively because the need to do so is so urgent and so immediate. Let's return to the 14th century then. So when labourers discovered that they could hire themselves out at a better rate, perhaps on the neighbouring uh, estate, um, what was the response of the landlords and the powers that be? The response was to try to prevent this uh, by ordering that uh, wages had to be capped at pre-plague levels. So today we have uh, the minimum wage, 
but they actually tried to impose a maximum wage. And as you can imagine, that didn't go very well um, and simply proved impossible to enforce because if people were not paid well where they were, then the next estate over might offer them better conditions because that estate had no workers, whatever. So people suddenly had the ability to bargain and they became much more mobile than they had previously as they moved around looking for better prospects. The third option was to actually go to a town because towns are really starting to develop at this period. So lots of people decided to leave the agricultural system and move to towns where they could potentially find better conditions or at least a better relationship with their employer. This wasn't always the case, but the prospect became more and more attractive. So in some ways, the the, the impact of the Black Death was a breakdown of the previous feudal system. Yes, definitely. It's it's spoken of very much as being the beginning of the end of serfdom and the rise of a, an economy based a bit more around towns, upon skilled labour that is focused more upon manufacturing, not in agriculture. And yes, you really start to see the decline of the previous model of peasant over of peasant workers and uh, feudal lord as being the only uh, or at least what people thought of as the only model for employer-employee relations. Can we draw any parallels there to the modern day, more broadly in terms of the prospects for state intervention? I mean, are there any parallels we can draw from that attempt post-Black Death to what's going on now? Okay, so I was speaking specifically of the Ordinance of Labourers. So that was passed in 1349, which is very, very quickly after the the Black Death hits England in 1348. And that, that is a state attempt. But I think now the state uh, response that we're seeing is the furlough scheme. So uh, the, the government has offered to cover or partly cover people's wages. And I think that has been at the moment a way of temporarily allowing people to keep their jobs. And we'll I think what's interesting here is seeing how that will work when people start going back to work, when the companies are having low profits because they haven't been working for several months, how that relationship between um, employer, employee and the state will work out as companies are starting up again. Yes. So in in a sense, it's the opposite of what happened uh, six or 700 years ago. The the government now has been trying to cushion the effects of the pandemic, or at least the economic effects. Uh, But it's uncertain how this will pan out uh, once people start to go back to their offices. Yes. And I think a lot of that is probably due to the impact of the global financial crisis in 2008. I think the government's very wary about the, the potential devastation caused by millions upon millions of people losing their jobs. I know you've studied the impact of middle-aged pandemics on company formation, on the emergence of entrepreneurs. Could you talk a little bit about that? What, what happened when it came to the way people started to work, how they started to cooperate and work together in, in new units? Entrepreneurial companies are already in development, but the Black Death really helped to accelerate that development. There'd actually been a really big banking crash just before the Black Death. So a lot of the economic turbulence uh, can probably be somewhat attributed. I wouldn't say it's the major factor, but can be somewhat attributed to the fact that the European uh, banking system is already uh, not in a very good state at this period. But the, the main thing the Black Death did for companies was 
it, the same impact that it had upon the peasant landlord relationship was that it caused a massive drop in the supply of labor. So companies turned to technological methods of production. So a lot of places in Italy, for example, had already been involved in silk weaving, but they started to invest more in new technologies, perhaps in buying technologies, perhaps in developing those technologies, which allowed them to replace people who they didn't have anymore because they were dead with machines. And because these new technologies were quite expensive, this benefited people who had large supplies of capital, who already had quite a lot of wealth. And it encouraged them to concentrate their wealth into into the hands of a small number of people and to keep it in the hands of a small number of people. So you get a tradition of companies getting wealthier and wealthier as they concentrate their wealth. So, so the, 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 sorry. just so I understand the, 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 the argument, so the, the, the idea is that uh, people were forced to pool their capital resources to, to get the funds together to, you know, to buy the equipment needed to, to do this processing, whatever it was uh, that they were working on. Um, they couldn't do that individually, but by pooling resources and setting up company structures, they were able to do this. Yes and no. I think my argument more is that this this use of resources really benefits those companies who were already wealthy and starts to differentiate between companies who have large supplies of capital, which may well be the result of several people joining together to pool that capital. Um, But it starts to benefit those people more than smaller companies such as artisans and small traders, shopkeepers who don't have large supplies of capital. So we start to see a bigger difference between entrepreneurs and small traders because okay. of the reliance upon technology that starts to really emerge that benefits people who have large supplies of capital. So that sounds pretty familiar to the modern day listener, I imagine, with the, we, we can all see that, that since the coronavirus impacted the economy, the, the larger tech firms in particular have done have done very well and they've they've uh, seemed to have boosted their market share and their profits. Yes, I definitely think there are parallels there. They've got the people, they've got the skills, they've got the infrastructure, and also they've got a good relationship with governments. And that was also very important um, back in the post-Black Death period. So these entrepreneurial groups or these you know, merchants uh, who pooled their efforts in the Middle Ages, you know, how long did their uh, companies or societies you know, stay uh, in in control for how you know how how long was their period of prosperity? Did they, did it set the scene for them to kind of rule over commerce for a, a century or two? This is really when we start to see the companies who will be very very powerful in the later fifteenth century and the sixteenth century start to emerge. They do evolve from an earlier form. These companies have existed before the Black Death. There were some companies that some historians have called super companies because they were very, very large. The companies after the Black Death tend to be a little bit smaller. This is partly, I think, as a response to the plague, but also because there had been problems with having their interests being pulled in too many directions and they want to be a bit more focused. But yes, these companies that emerge at this period are the dominant model all the way up until about the mid 16th century, when we get the emergence of joint stock companies. So I mean, it sounds as though they had, a, you know, they, they they emerged from the pandemic with a pretty strong competitive position. 
Yes, I think when we say emerged from the Black Death, a lot of these developments took place over several decades. And that's the difference between looking at what's happening now and looking at the Black Death that's operating on a much longer time scale. But yes, they do they do emerge in a quite strong position. They have really bounced back by the very late 14th century or the beginning of the 15th century and gain even more influence, even more market share and even more opportunities that that start to more and more differ them from smaller companies. And these merchant groups, were they uh, often allied with a financial interest? Were they bankers themselves or were they allied with a, with a group of bankers? How did they work in, in practice? There was a very heavy overlap between merchants and bankers, uh, particularly in Italy, which at this point is the most commercialized area of Europe. Florence was the center of banking and most of the big Florentine banks also would have been merchants. And one of the ways in which they're so successful, particularly in responding to the Black Death, is that they've got a very diverse portfolio of activities, both financial and commercial. Other companies would have good relationships with banks because they were so financially important. And then they'd be able to capitalize upon new developments because they had access to not only their own money, but they were also able to borrow from companies, from banks, I should say. How did public opinion respond to the emergence of this merchant banker class? There was a lot of hostility towards the emergence of merchants and to bankers. More more recently, historians have painted a more uh, diverse response. Typically, I think pe- uh, historians argued that people were hostile to all merchants, but actually a closer look shows that they start people start to become more accepting of small traders of people selling things in the market of artisans of local traders but they start to become more and more hostile to the big traders and there is a very long history to this because of uh, medieval christianity and its perception of trade and especially of banking um banking and charging was- interest presumably Yes, specifically charging interest. So traditionally, any form of charging interest was illegal and it was deemed to be uh, usury. And in the early Middle Ages, it had been pretty much entirely the preserve of Jewish families who had gained, I think, more stigma as a result of lending money. And because lending money was something that Jews did, it in turn became more and more stigmatized. So there's this cycle of stigma towards Jewish people and stigma towards money lending. But as Europe starts to become more commercialized, more Christians become involved in money lending. And then we get the emergence of banks proper. So the attitude towards banking and commerce starts to shift slightly because more people are involved in it and because it starts to be done for businesses. Uh, Banking starts to shift from being um, done entirely for practicality, for people who perhaps need to repay um, a creditor because they've lost their house and they had to borrow money in an emergency. We start to see the emergence of business loans, which merchants might just consider a normal part of of their operations. And so on one hand, we've got less stigma towards trade and even towards interest because it becomes more normalized. On the other hand, because those merchants and bankers are becoming more and more wealthy, there's hostility towards them because they're seen to have an unfair amount of power. It's a very interesting dynamic, isn't it? Because at the same time, those, I mean, the, the, you talk, talk about the perhaps the negative public opinion, but at the same time, the merchants and bankers were 
often the patrons of some of the you know the, the explosion of art and creativity that happened around the same time. So it's a it's a I guess it's a fairly mixed picture when you look at it from with the benefit of hindsight as a historian. Yes, very much so. And often that pa- often that patronage of art and of other cultural developments was done to compensate for their negative image. It's unclear how much this was just a, a blatant PR move and how much this was a, a genuine response, uh, maybe out of piety, maybe out of interest in culture. I think for a lot of people, it was probably both. But yes, the the cultural activity was very closely connected for many people towards uh, connect, closely connected to the stigma towards trade and banking. Yeah. You, your comments earlier about the um, the Black Death and the breakdown in feudal, uh, the feudal system leading to uh, helping to fuel the growth of, of towns and cities uh, struck me. I mean, it, 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 because now in response to coronavirus and the, the growth of online commercial activity, people are suggesting that the opposite trend might happen, that people might start to leave big conglomerations and head off to more remote places to, you know, to breathe the fresh air and to work uh, remotely. Any, any thoughts on, on those trends? Can we draw any historical parallels there? I think the post-Black Death period, the late 14th century, is such a different time because of how long it takes to communicate and because of how long it takes to travel. So I think that's the really big difference here. It simply wouldn't have been possible back then to operate at a huge distance from from everything because you really would just be completely out of the loop. There were certainly cases where people fled to the countryside during epidemics. So the most famous example would be during the Black Death when Boccaccio sets his Decameron, so his uh, series of stories all based around people who leave Florence and go to a countryside villa to stay there while the plague rages. The other famous example in England would be the 1665 plague, the one that was the year before the Great Fire of London, when Charles II and his court fled to the countryside. And this actually created a lot of criticism. Obviously, that's 300 years after the plague. But it's another example of when people went to the countryside to escape a pandemic. Could you talk more broadly about protest movements, countercultural movements? Because from what you've uh, talked about earlier, I get the impression that you know we're seeing, uh, you know, if the historical parallels are, are correct, you know, we're seeing increased power of some of the largest corporations in response to what's been going on. And at the same time, we have a lot of grassroots movements in the form of pro-ecology protests that have been going on for the last few years: the Green Movement, the Occupy Movement, Extinction Rebellion. Now we've seen some new forms of, you know, more youthful protest in, in response to what's been going on recently. Can you draw any? Parallels there. The most famous response to the Black Death takes place in 1381, and that's the Peasants' Revolt in England, which is obviously several decades after the Black Death, but is very much a response to it, and particularly a reaction to the government's attempt to firstly cap wages at a pre-plague level, and secondly to instigate heavy taxes to compensate for the economic, the short-term economic damage of the plague, and also to pay for continued warfare. And the breaking point is the poll tax of 1380, which is a tax that isn't means tested. So in other words, it's applied equally to all people. And that prompts a massive peasants revolt that breaks out and peasants march on London under a man called Watt Tyler. And they're eventually defeated by Richard II. But that is a huge protest movement that reflects 
uh, wider trends sweeping across Europe of protests in the late 14th and early 15th centuries. In so our 21st, the, the 21st century equivalent of that might still lie ahead of us? I think quite likely, yes. The Often, I think what the Black Death shows is that the immediate response can be quite different to the long-term response. And I think even now we have seen that difference. I think back, if we look back into April, for example, there was quite a panicked response. And no one had any idea what was going to happen. Everything was locked down. And now we're seeing a gradual lifting. And I think now we start to see people saying, well, where are we going to go after the pandemic? Or where are we going to go while coronavirus is still around, while it's still potentially a problem, but there are other problems too that are resulting from government measures or resulting from the actions of big companies. And then, of course, we've also got really big protests happening for somewhat unrelated reasons. And people are having to toss up between saying, do I stay home because it's safer or do I go out and protest because that's also a problem? You mentioned earlier that the the, the Black Death gave a, a boost to um, you know new forms of collective activity in the form of the the, the merchant banks that emerged and those then became you know, the, the kind of the prototype for the modern corporation which emerged in the 16th century. Do you think there are any you know, reasons for optimism that we might be able to find new forms of collective? Uh, working now, perhaps to address some of the problems we face regarding energy, you know, transport, food systems, which all of these things have been put under severe strain as a result of the economic disruption following the coronavirus pandemic. What trends do you see there? And are there other grounds for optimism? We might you know, use similar human ingenuity as people did in, you know, had in the, in the 14th century. I think we're already seeing that. We've seen quite a lot of movements taking place among neighbourhood cooperatives, among people in a small town, because they've had to respond to the sudden failure of the systems they already have set up. So lots of small businesses, for example, are having to completely transform their model because they may have been supplying restaurants and suddenly the restaurants aren't taking any supplies. So instead, they're selling to the public. And if they're doing so on a very small scale, often they're doing that in a cooperative way that is drawing upon neighbourhood bonds, it's drawing upon the use of volunteers, uh, word of mouth communication. So I think we are seeing the emergence and whether or not that's a permanent emergence or whether it's just a response to the crisis, I'm not sure. But we are seeing the emergence of new forms of cooperative, small-scale, local activity as a response to the crisis. As a final question, I mean, you, obviously, as a historian, you must constantly be coming up with, uh, you know, parallels in your mind to what you're studying, uh, between what you're studying and the, and the current day. What are, you know, what, where are the limits, uh, of, you know, what are the limits of historical study and drawing these kinds of parallels? What, what, where should we expect things to be similar, but also where should we accept that there are going to be inevitable differences? I think sometimes the... The, the differences that strike me the most about this, I'll, I'll start with them, are what I said right at the beginning, which is that today the world is far more globalized. We're far more connected. So the spread of the disease was much faster, but also it's possible to have a, a global response, a coordinated response. You know, we've got, we've got the World Health Organization, we've got governments talking to each other as they weren't able to do previously. Um, on the other hand, the global spread has mean that everywhere has been affected. So rather than having places shut down sequentially, they're shutting down simultaneously. And that's caused a very different response. In terms of similarities, I think that we're also seeing 
we're seeing the same developments in shifting attitudes that people have towards what's important, particularly when it comes to to the economy and their own their own place within it. So their relationships with their employers start to be viewed in a different light. Their relationships with their neighbours might change. People can become more suspicious of their neighbours, but they can also become more reliant upon them. That's something we see during the Black Death as well. So in, in, in many senses, it's a, it's a shock to the system of the kind that we've seen repeatedly in human history and, and certain things get reset as a result. Yes, I'd say I'd say so. Yes. I think the big difference is that perhaps today we weren't really expecting something like this. And certainly the Black Death was completely unprecedented, but people were perhaps a bit more used to dealing with crises or they were a bit more familiar with them. Whether or not they were capable of dealing with them is not the same thing. Eleanor, thank you very much for your time. It's been a very interesting chat. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. For listening to this new money review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. Money is changing fast. It's moving more quickly and cheaply. It's becoming more intelligent and more transparent. At the same time, it's becoming more complex and for many of us, more annoying. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so in two ways. On the right hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com, you can find a link to our Patreon account, P A T R E O N forward slash New Money Review. There you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage. Thank you.